Welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. This show is brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high-quality, complimentary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. Please show your support by taking a moment to provide a review on Google, Facebook, or iTunes. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. On today's episode, we are speaking with Warren Cook, president and co-founder of Symbian's HR, an HR consulting partner that uses direct experience and best practices for solving human resource challenges about the topic of building and engaging company culture and avoiding HR minefields at work-related events. Company culture is a factor that can lead to sustained success or unexpected failure. For this reason, leadership should pay special attention to the design, development, implementation, and management of the company culture to ensure it is sustainable and beneficial to the business. This episode will review the concept of business culture, explain the various constructs that form these standards, and provide strategies to improve engagement with the workforce to support the desired values for your business. We will also identify employment practice risks and liabilities when planning company-sponsored events by providing practical tips and strategies to ensure you consider critical factors as you plan these inclusive events for your company. So Arn, thank you so much for being here on First Talk Compliance. Pleasure to be here with Catherine. Thank you. I know that companies believe that they have identified the culture that they want. However, it doesn't seem like everyone is always on board. What do you suggest in a situation like this? Oh, great question, and it's very common. If management and leadership are not necessarily on board, you have to find a way to educate them or their role in modeling the various actions and behaviors that they expect from a workforce, which really the behavioral norms and actions of the business are the culture. So if they're not willing to do this across the leadership team or the C-suite or any other part of the management team, culture itself could fail, and most of the times it will fail. So your leadership team really needs to live what they preach and what they expect. And then if the problem ends up being with the workforce failing to comply or adjust their behaviors, you need to establish a way to improve your accountability and enhance your foundational programs such as talent acquisition, orientation programs, your onboarding, performance management for engagement and improved communication, even including things like ceremonies and events and activities that you have with your workforce that are supposed to support your culture. Well, speaking of events, I know that it it sounds like there's a serious risk when a company decides to have an event. Why do you think that it feels like this is so serious? No, that's great. You're right. Uh, There are serious risks and liabilities associated with any kind of company event, uh, especially if that company event is off-site. You know, oftentimes I think until you get that first EEOC charge for discrimination or sexual harassment, or if you get a notice from the DOL that you haven't been paying people properly on a company event because you had them out of the office, you might not even think the risk is real. HR professionals like myself really have a a responsibility to protect the business, and we do this by identifying, limiting, and mitigating risks and liabilities for a business. 
we try to establish policies, train management, and communicate the workforce to ensure accountability leads to better compliance, especially when you're executing your employment practices. And that includes these company events. Too often businesses think that once the employees are out of the office, their responsibilities stop in ensuring their staff are free from harassment or discrimination, even bullying or workplace violence. So it's absolutely the wrong approach to, to, to not think about this risk and, and, and liability, and it leads to significant exposure that could negatively impact that business far beyond the penalties and fines from a regulatory agency. If you really think about it, imagine your own picture on the front page of every news and social media outlet accusing you of harassing your staff during an external company-sponsored event. Uh, it can really ruin much more than just your business. It can ruin your reputation in industry. It can ruin your reputation as a business, as a someone in the community. And really, as an employer and member of the local community, you want to avoid that at all costs. So company events, which are really tied to developing your culture of the business, can have risk associated with it. Oh, what a nightmare thought. Speaking of culture and the culture of the employment there, stories and legends can help with the culture I know. However, what if a company doesn't seem to have any stories or myths? Oh yeah, that's a great point because you know that stories and legends do a lot for your business. Um, so it's an interesting question. I'm not really familiar with any business or business entity that doesn't have some sort of compelling story or legend about how they came into existence. And more importantly, the journey to reach where they are today. Even a startup company, uh, Catherine, has a history of the first thought of founder had that turned into action that then be ultimately resulted in the formation of a business. Um, there really is something there behind all that. And there's the benefit of understanding that story or that myth or that legend is demonstrating the personal challenges and obstacles faced so that the workforce can connect uh, with leaders and with the vision of the business and they can find similar purpose and, and mutual benefit from moving forward. When you establish those goals with the workforce, you first establish mutual purpose, and then that purpose is embedded in the stories and the business resulted in a product or service that's designed to help people in some way. So when you think about helping the workforce understand that history and that story, it reaches them almost on an emotional level, and that emotional connection creates further alignment, it creates engagement and commitment, and it enhances how they support the desired culture of the business. A lot of times that same approach is critical when business leaders are making decisions about the business, and it's really critical to your culture and how you go about making those business decisions and helping the business understand them. So maybe it's not that these companies don't have stories or myths. Maybe they just need better communicators, perhaps, to tell these stories or, or better storytellers. Absolutely. And, and, and the reality is your marketing professionals, your leadership team, however you're developing your communication strategy, it's important to not neglect or forget that how and what you communicate becomes part of the culture. Well, decision making should happen by management. However, I know that you stated the decision making process is important for the culture. How do we help the workforce feel more involved in decision making? So transparency is really uh, important in, in understanding how decisions are made. I mean, it's critical. And a lot of times employees have no idea how decisions are made in a workforce. So employees know and understand that management makes decisions. However, because they often don't understand or know how and why they make certain decisions, it becomes problematic. 
especially if management requests input from the workforce, such as a suggestion box or change for improvement or process improvement initiatives, and the employees never know what happens to those recommendations they make. It's important to provide your workforce training on how to develop a business case. This will educate the workforce on how to think more like a business, like a business owner, like a business leader, and it forces a change in perspective from their own benefits to the needs of the benefits of the business. So now they're gonna think of what the business needs versus themselves. Educate your workforce on critical decision point factors like cost, resource needs, timing, risks, external market factors, even competition, how you make revenue, even just the physical space and more that you need to do something. If you give an employee the tools and the templates that they need and you teach them what's important for leadership to make a decision, then you force them to provide not just one idea, but alternate ideas and multiple ideas and the various risks and costs and liabilities. When you do that, it empowers them to think more aligned with management. And as a final suggestion to doing that, I think if I recommend if you let those employees who are brave enough and comfortable enough to submit a recommendation, that you let them prepare and submit that idea to management directly. Actually give them a form and a stage and a voice to present that idea and, and gain some professional development along the way. If you're trying to build that culture where there's transparency and engagement, there's no better way than really making sure they're included in the decision-making, and this is one approach and way to do it. Give them the tools and the training to understand how decisions are made. How do performance reviews, though, how do they help a company culture? I, know, I don't think I ever really thought about um, performance reviews and company culture together, but how do you think that they that they influence company culture. Sure, no, I mean, you'll, you, there'll, there'll be a theme through our conversation here today, Catherine, and that it's engagement, right? Culture is really dependent on engagement and how people work well with each other. And so as you build a culture, it's one thing to tell people what you need them to do. It's another to have them want to do it. And so performance reviews uh, establish communication and they establish trust. So if you train your people leaders effectively and they are consistent in providing professional development through the practice of a performance management program or process, the result is really creation of strong business relationships with their teams. If people trust their supervisors, they work together to achieve common goals more effectively, then they're gonna provide feedback, they'll share suggestions, they'll wanna grow with the company. When you build that level of engagement and collaboration, it'll be the cornerstone to your ability to sustain your desired culture. And why do I say that? I believe it because the level of communication and trust becomes very high when you have good performance development and professional development. When leaders and managers model that desired workplace behavior, create that engagement and those actions create trust with their employees and trust with their supervisors, people will strive to demonstrate the same behavior for the rest of the people they work with. That drives consistency and it just builds on that engaging culture. It's a critical component and trust becomes very fundamental. How effective is talent acquisition for impacting your culture? It doesn't seem like a direct connection. I can see that as well. I can see how, you know, when you're bringing people on, why does why is culture impacting it and how? But it's a great point you make and, and why it's critical that we're doing a talk like this. If you're looking for a position with a high level of collaboration and engagement, for example, if you're an applicant, and an opportunity for growth. And in reading a job posting or during your first round interview, you learn that the position was a remote work from home opportunity. Right away, your goals and the current company's culture of having a work, remote workforce, they don't align. 
Another example would be the desire of an applicant to work for a company that's dedicated to helping the community, um, a, a, one that's extremely socially responsible. Your career page and your website might have videos of images of managers and employees doing volunteer work in the community. During the interview process, a member of the hiring team might share that all the employees are paid to perform 100 hours of community service. Immediately, without even asking or having to be in the workplace, that applicant can get a feel for the culture of the business. And remember, the exact opposite messaging is true with the absence of these actions and behaviors. So your talent acquisition program or process and what you communicate and what you do, even if it's not direct, really does allow people on the outside, specifically applicants, learn about your culture. So if you neglect talent acquisition when you're doing your planning of how to build a strong culture, you're missing a significant piece of it. Every organization has a business or corporate culture. However, it often appears like the culture is inconsistent or challenging to maintain the way the leadership desires. Why is that? Why does that happen? That's uh, a great question, Catherine. One that many business leaders continue to ask me as they seek to overcome this workplace challenge. The primary cause for the inconsistency and the challenge is the ever-changing workforce as people come and go into the company and out of the company. The secondary reason is the lack of demonstrated actions and behaviors of the leadership blended with the absence of accountability that erodes the desired culture and produces a new one each and every time. That's very interesting, but perhaps not obvious, though, for the leadership of the company. Explain the inconsistency challenge further and what leads to this problem. Certainly. Yeah. The primary reason is the easier one to explain. Turnover or growth of an organization results in new employees, and every new employee has a different perspective, a different belief, and various workplace behaviors that they bring into your organization. Regardless of their work history of the employee, meaning their first job or the 10th job they might have, the individual has learned how to be effective in how they perform tasks, communicate with others, solve problems, ask questions, et cetera. And it could have been a job, it could have been in school. So when you infuse new people into an established group, it creates both a challenge and opportunity to educate and train on expectations and desired behaviors. However, many organizations have not established what's necessary, in my opinion, from a systems and practices perspective, to transfer the appropriate knowledge to new employees for successful transition into the organization. This results in inconsistent actions and behaviors, which disrupts or erodes your current culture, because again, Culture is the behavioral norms and actions of a business. And so everyone coming in and out continuously is potentially disrupting that culture. Okay, this sounds like the problem isn't easy to fix. What do you recommend the organizations do to overcome this type of challenge? Well, one of the two reasons I shared with you, I have found it to be easier problem to fix because it requires the establishment of really good, effective human resource management practices and that includes the talent acquisition process, orientation, onboarding, and even on-the-job training. But often neglected because the activities do not generate revenue, building a strong human resources infrastructure really directly impacts the ability for leadership uh, to establish and implement and sustain the culture they desire. Development of robust recruiting and interview practices that then flow into orientation and into onboarding that's executed consistently by trained professionals or your trained leadership team basically, ensures communication of the culture, and then it demonstrates the necessary behaviors for new employees to adopt the culture. 
Basically, you design an engaging program that models what you expect, but also encourages compliance to be successful. So this sounds extremely comprehensive. You did mention a second reason. What can business leaders do to improve their organization's culture? Um, Let's not forget to cover that. So this is more difficult challenge to culture requires the membership of the members of the leadership team to be self-accountable and how they execute their duties for the company. Okay, that appears to be a simple solution. Why do you claim this is more challenging? First and foremost, because it requires your leaders or your C-suite executives to look in the mirror and realize that they are often the problem and the actual cause of the failure in the culture. Their inability to demonstrate and model the necessary actions and behavioral norms for the workforce to observe and for the workforce to follow then results in the lack of trust and confidence in doing what's expected. And if you take that thought a little further, leaders who fail to stay engaged with their staff or hold them accountable for demonstrating these expected behaviors become part of the problem and not the solution. I'm often uh, in a situation where I'm asking a CEO what their company culture is. And then I ask a receptionist or a staff member the same question. And almost 100% of the time, Catherine, the answers are drastically different. What the leader thinks the culture is versus the reality of what the workforce experience is the challenge because it requires the leader to own the problem and part of the solution. You cannot simply tell your management and workforce what the culture is. You need to model it, demonstrate it, and basically live it every day so that others trust and believe in it and then they follow it. So while it's easier said than done, if you want a consistent, productive company culture that's sustainable, that leadership must implement the necessary systems, programs, and practices we discussed here today in order for it to be successful. Okay, great. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance, brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance, as part of our commitment to provide high-quality, complementary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. My guest today is Warren Cook, president and co-founder of Symbionts HR, about building an engaging company culture and avoiding HR minefields at work-related events. Please show your support by taking a few minutes to provide a review of First Healthcare Compliance on Google or Facebook. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. So Warren, how do you build a culture of trust in the workplace? One of the most effective ways is engagement, and that engagement is how you interact between your supervisors and employees. And uh, a method to that or a strategy to that is embedding and training your managers to leverage the performance process. So performance management, performance reviews, really the whole cycle of professional development to build that trust. And the way you go about doing that is making sure that every employee truly believes through the engagement with the with the supervisor that that supervisor has their best interest at heart that they're they're dedicated to providing that employee the tools and resources and support to be successful so that there is a lack of uh, intimidation or lack of worry in meeting with that person and that they can share with them where they need to grow if you think about it a lot of times it's a one-way communication and that's because of a lack of trust If the employee is made to feel that they can trust that supervisor, that engagement improves, they're asked questions that they need to get answers to, and hopefully they can gain some professional development. When that happens, now you have two people collaborating on the person's professional growth, as well as how they can accomplish their job most successfully. 
And if you have a whole workforce of successful employees achieving the goals that you've established for them, ultimately the entire business should be more successful. So that's, a, that's really a, a one way to go about building trust. It's through that performance review process and, and performance uh, management. I know that a lot of employees might have some anxiety or feel intimidated. How do you help employees develop a level of comfort during the review process? Ah, you remind them you're not going to fire them because of it. No, I'm just kidding. So, (laughs) yeah, so it is. I mean, a lot of times it's the cultures have developed a perception, just like with Open Door, that the only time you're getting feedback is when you've done something wrong. And the only time somebody's going to document that feedback is when it's negative or punitive. And that's so common. And that's one of the hardest things to overcome when you're building and driving a culture of engagement and building that trust. You have to set the stage so that the relationship between the supervisor and the employee is productive and mutually beneficial, right? Uh, Symbiotic, really. And so the way you go about doing that is ensuring that the employee has a voice during the process of performance review, that early on at the beginning of the process, which is goal setting, that the goals are established with mutual consent, that you're both working on setting those goals together. So if you set the goals together and you regularly meet, not every six months or once a year, every two or three weeks, carve out 15 or 20 minutes to sit down and go over the progress against those goals. And if those goals are mutual goals, then it's not about just the employee. If there's things an employee fails to do, it often implies that the supervisor also failed in helping the employee be successful. So now it becomes a mutual process where they're collaboratively working together, talking and trusting one another to help each other be successful. And so how do you eliminate that intimidation? It's that involvement, giving the employee a voice, giving them feedback, both positive and constructive feedback of where they failed. We all learn, Catherine, from our mistakes. We all make errors. We all are human. And so we're going to do things where we have problems. The supervisors that fail to communicate what the deficiency was and give that employee a path forward of how they can be successful are the ones creating that intimidating environment where an employee doesn't want to go meet with the supervisor or do that review because it's always negative. But if I had a supervisor who told me this is what we did wrong, this is what happened, this is what I expect from you, and this is how I will help you be successful doing it, trust would be created and people would almost seek out their supervisors in that trust and relationship to get the help they need to be successful. It's just like if you're back in elementary school and you ask for help to do a homework problem or to answer a question, you want to feel comfortable going to that supervisor because, again, like I mentioned earlier, if there's trust that you believe that person truly cares about your success, you won't be intimidated and you'll seek them out for that performance discussion. So I have a question about holidays. Different facilities might like to celebrate all kinds of different holidays. What if you have some employees who are of particular religions that don't celebrate any holidays whatsoever? They have made it clear that they don't want to do any kind of gift exchange, but everyone else is doing gift exchanges, or they don't want to be involved in any of the celebrations where where the administration puts out food or cake. What do you do in these type of situations so that they don't feel like there's some kind of unintended discrimination? Sure. No, that's a great question. And it comes up all the time. And it's a a common problem because uh, it's human nature to want to invite people and include everybody. Um, But it's also natural to 
unintentionally exclude somebody when you believe they're not going to participate. Um, you know, there's certain religions that don't celebrate almost any holidays and birth that, that won't, for example, won't celebrate birthdays. And I was in one organization where we had um, birthday celebrations regularly. And because these individuals regularly declined to attend, they were they were no longer invited. And mm -hmm. that got very serious because they filed a lawsuit saying that they were excluded because of a religious reason. And they were right. Um, their religious beliefs included them from accepting the invitation. And there was never that intent. The intent from the workers who stopped inviting them was we just tired of bothering them. We feel like we're bothering our peers and we don't want to bother them anymore. But they need to. They need to be inclusive. So one thing is to make sure that you're always including everybody in the workforce that's appropriate to include, meaning just about everybody. If you're doing a department lunch, you don't have to invite other departments, but you should invite everybody in that department. Let the people decline um, versus assuming that they will decline. And be careful as well if you're including spouses uh, or significant others, because that spouse or significant other may have some type of religious or other type of uh, reason to decline or, or whatnot. And you've just got to be careful on how you plan for that. Regarding gifts and, and just adherence to other things, you, you want to have some policies and practices around what can and can't be displayed in the workplace, because it's so easy to offend somebody nowadays with their own beliefs that you want to have some policies around whether or not an employee without management approval can post things in a hallway or put up decorations. What I've seen as the best practice is allow someone to put inside their cube or work office space um, their holiday related act, uh, items, uh, but they can't display it out for the public, for everyone else in the organization to see. So maybe not on the walls, but it could have something on their desk or their, or their cube. But uh, for the most part, businesses should try to set some standards around that. Regarding like gift exchanges or other things that might happen at an event that that person declined, you have a few paths you can take. One could be not allowing employees to do gift exchanges and giving everybody some type of gift card or whatever it might be. Um, it might be having gifts there that the company provides, and then it's just a matter of exchanging them. Or you could set a dollar limit on what the exchange would be and then give those employees who decline a gift card in that amount, in that nominate denomination. So there's a lot of ways to go about that, but you almost can't control if people show up with gifts when it wasn't part of the planned event. So sometimes it's more important to make sure that you outline what's acceptable gift exchanges or that's, that's company-wide so that everybody knows, all right, $25 is our limit. Everyone should give a gift. We're going to do a Santa exchange or whatever type of gift exchange we want to pay. And if you don't attend the event, then you'll be provided a $25 gift card to get whatever you want. So they don't lose the dollar value, but they will, will not be able to participate in the exchange with everyone else in the festivities, so to speak. So that would be non-discriminatory. That would be inclusive, but it allows people to really be part of the decision making as well. Thank you. Before we go, though, do you have any other bits of advice for us or things for our audience? Absolutely. I think uh, the most critical takeaway is that culture is going to be there in the form you want it or in the form it evolves into, especially if you don't put any attention on it. So if you want to drive a culture that you desire, it's going to take you being strategic and proactive. Uh, and if you are uh, not interested in changing your culture, then it's going to evolve into what it is. Regardless of where your culture is today, if it's successful and going the way you want, can keep focus on it to sustain it because, again, you're going to have people come in and out of your workforce. If your culture today is not what you want, 
It's never too late to start embedding and training and developing the, the behaviors and actions you want to achieve the culture you desire. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for being here. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about the show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at Short at FirstHCC.com. I'm Catherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind. <laughs>